and I still refer to Al as my as my army dad because that's that's what he was. I was seventeen years old. Uh, he tried to look after me, failed miserably sometimes, but most of the time <laughs> he actually did quite a good job. So that bond is uh, is very important. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. We're back with Alan Hodges, a Royal Tank Regiment Chieftain Tank Commander, and Mick Hadfield, who is his 17-year-old gunner. In this episode, we talk in detail about their deployment to within a kilometre of the East German border and their tasks should HR have come, as well as emergency deployment from barracks. There is no affection for their main training area at Saltau, described as the moon with a few trees and also in a few less polite terms. However, these training periods are made better by the regular appearance of Wolfgang, a German entrepreneur and British Army legend who uncannily was able to place his snack vans wherever the British Army deployed. We also hear how the crews trained in evacuating the tank if it was hit, as well as how to evade capture and resist interrogation. It's anecdotes galore again, including a visit from a Swedish major who was unwisely given the chance to drive a chieftain tank. It's also tinged with sadness as we remember those who never came back from exercises due to accidents. But it is the continuing story of a close bond that soldiers forge that still lasts to this day. You can directly help to preserve Cold War history by becoming a financial supporter of the podcast. You'll be part of our community, you'll get a sought-after Cold War Conversations coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. If a monthly contribution is not your cup of tea, we also welcome one-off donations via coldwarconversations.com slash donate. I'm delighted to welcome back Mick and Al to our Cold War Conversation. So I understand it, you knew where you were going to fight. You knew the area, you knew even down to firing positions. Is, is that correct? Yeah, because um, with all the training, obviously a lot of the training goes on in, in the classroom on big boards and you move little targets around and you've got, you know, the as it were then, the East German border laid out and the West German border uh, up to the north towards Braunschweig and, and coming down, sorry, Schleswig-Holstein coming down that way, Hamburg, Hanover, um, and really down to towards the Fulda Gap where the Americans were. So in the 70s, when we were on medium recce, uh, we used to go out on patrols in Land Rovers and drive, obviously on our side, on right up to the border. So it was laid out in you know, standard order uh, procedures and everything exactly where you would be. So in various, all across, if you like, from not just our regiment, but everybody else would have their firing positions, if you like, laid out for the recce vehicles. And I have no doubt for the MBT boys, the heavy boys, theirs would be laid out in certain areas, but theirs would be more fluid in, in the, not a certain spot. 
but say 100 meters to the left or right would be because once you fired one or two rounds you do you don't want to be sitting in the same place because obviously you'd have to move around a little bit but as i say the the mbt boys would would sit in that position more because obviously the main stream uh, is coming across so you'd be trying to you know you, you would have what we would call a target rich environment there would be tanks and vehicles everywhere so you know you'd be taking literally without being stupid pot shots at these trying to slow them down the recce boys is totally different because obviously we would have already gone out there and had our positions of where we would be monitoring not necessarily firing on things but bringing down fire missions and where your next position would be going back so literally on the border that's where you would be expected to be at each hour when they come across and then obviously fall back or do whatever takes place into different positions as you're going, um, as you're withdrawing, because the British Army never retreats, it withdraws. Yeah, indeed, indeed. So how how close were your deployment positions to the border? Well, obviously, with um, you, you could see it. You were literally on the border. Um, you, yeah, you used to do patrols on our side and they'd obviously be in what we would call obviously the goon towers looking over at you, but you were literally within a kilometre. That's, you know, you're, you're right up there because our, our job is basically the, the the sneaky beakies, as we call them, would be in front of us, but we would be there as, as, as a forward screen. So we would then pass the information back by radio as to what's happening and as we're falling back that's when as you see in normal war scenarios and war films you're bringing down artillery barrages on certain bridges on certain towns to slow them up obviously once they got to the big open plains you know north of hanover and coming across that towards the luneburg then that's where the big boys would hopefully be to start taking them out as they were coming across that way and uh the uh Hildesheim was, I later found out, was almost a centre uh, for stay-behind troops. Uh, so under the cookhouse was uh, all the supplies for, um, I think it was 21 and 23 SAS. And in one of your previous episodes, uh, there was a chap that was uh, one of the stay-behinds for Five Heavy um, who did his uh, did his training and his selection uh, in and around Hildesheim, which was quite amazing because we, we would have been in the camp at the same time that, that he did that. So to hear that story... Um, tied up a few uh, a few loose ends, if you will. But yeah, their their mission will be to head towards the, mm-hmm. the East German border and let the tanks roll over the top of them um, before we uh, before we engage with them. But I do remember uh, an exercise uh, where we were we were on um, this, it looked like the side of a hill, um, a forested hill, looking out towards East Germany, uh, and we had togs back then. Uh, and it was just an open play, and I just remember thinking to myself, if anything trundles this way, we're, we're, we're going to have them. Um, it, it was like, I mean, it literally was like shooting ducks in, in a barrel, because uh, at the time, um, the, the West Germans had said, right, if you're going to drive on the roads, then you need to put um, the, you know, the, the hazardous plates on the back of the tanks and put a flashing light on top. So we were in a scenario where we were doing a war game where you would see the flashing lights on a Challenger tank four miles away, um, and then you thought, well, in, in a war situation, I can I can see further than that as well. 
Um, I mean, you'd have to take into account that, you know, if, if the balloon did go up, then where we were sat would probably be, would have been a, a prime site for an artillery or an airstrike. But from a point of a, a gunner's position, it was an absolute dream position. Our, so our mobility side of it, we wouldn't, we didn't have that far really to go, you know, to sort of get to our positions in the tanks. Um, I mean, we only found out, as, as Mick was alluding to there, sort of later on in the scenario, if the Belgians had a problem in the south, we as B squadron would have been dispatched, if you like, from one RTR to try and assist or fill that gap, if you like, on our um, southern flank um, down towards Paderborn and Senelaga, you know, to help the Belgians and just, you know, put, plug that little bit of a hole. But when you consider, you know, you've got 57 tanks that are trying to head to the east as fast as possible. We were the first break line or first heavy resistance that they were going to come up against. And our job was basically, without you know, obviously giving away massive details, was to slow them down as long as possible so that the people to our west, south and north can get into position and, and carry on um, what few of us would have been left, I suppose. At that that came into stark contrast for me when uh, I went to uh, QM Techs and I saw them moving a chieftain barrel, uh, spare barrel around. And I said, well, have we only got one barrel? And the, the QM said, well, you're only going to need one barrel. Um, so that was quite a quest. You're yeah. not going to have a chance, chance to, to, to change the barrel. Yeah. I mean, that assumes that, you know, that you the there's a sort of increased threat of war and you're able to deploy before they attack but presumably some of the scenarios you were practicing was a, a sudden surprise crossing of the border while you were still in in barracks potentially we did but where where we was where we were stationed uh, in, in ill design and then to the north hanover we have a motorway the motorway was there basically if, if anything that would be if you like our holding point to the western side of that motorway you know, you, you, we were in, we basically took over massive aircraft hangars. So we literally had two squadrons worth of tanks in one hangar, which was ourselves, B squadron and A squadron. So, you know, there's, there's half the regiment, if you like, in, in one hangar. So if that got hit, then you would have had a problem. But that's that would have been our scenario. I mean, you know, when you consider it and the fact that we, we would have had God bless what's going on in Ukraine now. You had that tension at first and then that's how it built up. That's how our, you know, supplies would turn up with diesel. You know, they turn up with our ammunition. We've practiced loading the tanks on many, many a time with ammunition. I mean, you're going to allude to exercise active edge and all the rest of that later. Um, you know, being woke up at three o'clock in the morning and going into camp and stuff, getting ready and then, saying goodbye to your family and praying like hell that it is an exercise. But that's what that's what the training comes in. And and I know it sounds silly, but that's that's the two scenarios where you've got chance to be fully loaded, picked up by the low loaders if you have the you know, and taken to wherever you're going, or caught on the hop and having to get to that motorway with your ammunition, whatever ammunition they, they could supply, because don't forget, we're not loaded with anything while we're in the camp. There's nothing there, so you know it doesn't take ten minutes to load a tank. It takes quite a while to get that diesel in there and all that ammunition. 
we also used to have something called um, bog outs, um, and there was a divisional bog out, which we always knew was was an exercise. But there was a Sakura bog out, a Supreme Allied Commander Europe bog out, and we never knew whether that was actually real or not. And there were, we did a couple of those, so those were a, a little bit hairy. And you, you would race down to the armory to pick up all your weapons. Now Al, Al was obviously married, so he had to make his way in from merry quarters. Whereas I was single, and I was in the block, and it was expected that the singles would, would pick up. Um, you know the, all the GPMGs and all, all the kits and drag it to the to, to the tanks along with all your personal your personal kit which had to be kept to one side uh, and then wait for the rest of the uh, the regiment to arrive and and then we would we would make it out. We had a, an ammunition compound that wasn't that far away from us uh, actually, uh, and that was you know that's the other side of the thing is we weren't just tank uh, weren't just tankies. Um, we used to have to do um, sight guard for places that stored. Um, ammunition as well so that was also part of, of being in the army and everybody had to do that as well so w- with these scenarios you you didn't know whether this was the real thing or not no, no. not well certainly not with the sacro ones you you would you, you would just like anything else ian if, if you put it in the scenario of if you work in a big massive office block and somebody wants to do a fire drill no matter how much you try and keep it quiet, somebody will know that there's a fire drill taking place at six o'clock in the morning. Now you would get the rumor that you were going to practice this active edge or, you know, but I mean, Mick will tell you with my lads, especially the more experience you get, you would, your army equipment you used to have, such as your combats or your denims or whatever it is, you would have the uniform that you would use on a daily basis but you would also, with your spare ones, put them to one side in packs ready. So I, as, as a married guy, I used to leave in a locker at work all my webbing, all my what I call bog-out kit. I used to leave at work, take it home every now and then to wash it, you know, so you don't smell like a wet dog in the, on a bad day. But it would all be there in my locker ready. So as the bog-out took place, I'm 90% there, Mick. And the rest of the crew, by the time I got in from Hanover, where I lived, would already have the the, the tank started up, up and running, fueled, anything that needed to go. I would probably just have to go and get my personal weapon, which at the time used to be a 9mm Browning. So I used to stick it in my American holster there underneath my denims, looking like Audie Murphy, and just leg it down to the tank park and jump aboard with my map and... Just wait for the briefing, and then you just sit there, engines running or engines not running, the auxiliary engine running if you've got the gun kit on, and just waiting for orders. Invariably, what used to happen is that, you know, you used to get sort of the call about 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning, so you'd all be legging it down. By 11 o'clock, if it's a false alarm, you stood down, the lads go and get the breakfast and everything, and then we just debunk and, and get debriefed. But there was... Uh, there's been quite a few times when we've been actually what I call bogged out and then you're going on exercise. So literally you're expected to stop and then the low loaders come and pick you up and take you up to Salto training. So that's why you've got to be prepared. If you think it's just going to be, well, it's only an exercise, you could get caught out a few times where they throw the compo at you, the, the food, and you've got your guns, and you've got everything, and then they say, right, we'll tell you, missus, you'll be back in two weeks. Yeah, that's, it can happen. 
one of the things I was going to ask you, did you practice bailing out in case the tank was hit? Yeah. Um, when you're out with a new troop, you know, some people, we, we were lucky. We had a place called Himmelster, which is just outside um, Hildesheim. So it's a training area. So what you do is you do squadron exercises and regimental exercises up in the big place like Salto or Canada. You can go on Himmelster. And um, quite a lot of the troops, and I know most of the troop sergeants, who are still good friends of mine, we used to take them out, especially if it's a new troop, you know, to gel, to train, and things like that. You know, for instance, if the tank was hit, what, what do you take first? Well, you're going to grab the, your personal weapons and you're going to grab the machine gun off the top, the commander's machine gun, which you can use, you know, from the hip if you have to. And then you get your personal kit off and then, well, how are you going to get rid of the tank so it can't be used? So you practice what you would do about dropping grenades inside to blow the thing up, damage the breach so it can't be used. Just that type of thing, just bailing out the tank um, so nobody else can fight it, basically. You Things that you need to survive, you've got to, you, know, you haven't got time to mess around. If this thing's on fire or you're under a, you know, fire yourself, you're not going to sit there and take your time. You've got to grab whatever you can and be off there. And we used to have, we practiced what we call a two minute rule. So literally, if you were stood at the side of the tank and you threw a smoke bomb or something at me, let's see what we can get off within two minutes. And it would have to be weapons, your respirator, and whatever food, kit, water you can drag off there. I remember that being absolutely exhausting, um, doing it on on Saltow. Um, and I remember you calling. I remember you calling. You know, we've been here. Let's get out. Let's get out. Uh, and you know, the adrenaline's running, and you, you're trying to grab your weapon and all your kit, and then you're trying to make your way across <laughs> across Saltow in, in knee deep mud. Uh, and, and try, as far as it's probably no more than 50 or 60 meters. But by the time you got there, and we were all fit, but absolutely thoroughly exhausted um, after, after doing that. So it was quite something to do. Yeah. Were you ever sort of like told uh, you only give name, rank, and si- serial number if you're captured or anything? You know, w- was there any advice? Oh, yeah. it, that's literally it. You're right. It was name, rank, and number. And Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week to be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War. As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. I mean, obviously, you don't do it on exercise. You walk around, don't you, with your wallet and your money and your pictures of the family and everything else. But literally, if you were going out into um, a major training exercise or if you were in Salto, um, you know, sorry, Batis in Canada, you literally wore your dog tags. You know, you had your dog tags on and you literally was, you know, you, you, you do minor exercises out there where 
you do escape an evasion. And if you are captured by, in the past, we have had exercises we've been doing on the tanks where we've had SAS and people like that actually out trying to capture tank crews, you know, and, you, and that's part of the exercise. And when you do escape and evasion exercises with obviously your own people, but who are trained on, you know, interrogation, they, they, yeah, they take you right through it. They dip in your head in the water and pouring water down your neck and stripping you off, sitting there for three hours with nothing on that type of thing. They go through the whole caboodle with you. Yeah. Yeah. We, I, I did that on, on my car, of course, where they took us down to the American sector and the Americans acted as the uh, opposing force. And we had to go through, um, through all of that and yeah being blindfolded with your your head in a in a water trench where a land rover well a humvee had been and then they would um you know roll the roll the wheel back over your head so you thought it was a humvee and and strip you naked and and, and all that, that type of things um yeah it wasn't that wasn't much fun at all but yeah name rank and number i hadn't realized that, that you'd that you'd actually gone to the lengths of escape and evasion as well i, I thought that was only mm. air crew that's really interesting oh we all do it well, I was—I always remember, um, you know, if you, you were taking your map with you, make sure that there were, you know, there were no marks on the map that were, you know, that you could you could actually give, um, you know, give your position away. Um, yeah, it was, yeah, it was, it was quite something. Um, I, I do remember that down in the American sector with with the M ones. Um, what was the, the regiment? Was the uh, three eleven armored cavalry? Yeah, black horse. Third squadron eleven armored cavalry, wasn't it? The black horse. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So Tracy Norris, if you're listening into this, mm. that's that's your that's your gang. Yeah. Alan, I I asked you earlier about uh, having a different vehicle, and I think in '84, I think with Lionheart, where you ended up with some war reserve vehicle. Oh dear. <laughs> this squadron um, it, it, of tanks is basically a war reserve squadron, which was kept in Senelaga Paderborn in Germany. Now these, Ian, were pre-IFCS, these were the world's oldest chieftain, I think, that they, they literally store in, in this facility. And um, believe it or not, there was an ex-RSM captain, Jack Butel, ex-1RTR, who was actually in charge of the facility when when we practised line art. Line art was basically like um, spear point exercises of the 80, which is the American reforger where they send people over from America in the big planes. Mm. Um, they already have 80% of their equipment already in theatre. Um, what we practice was on this. This is the biggest exercise that the British Army had ever done besides going to war, which was exercise line art in 84. Uh, and literally at the time, uh, first tanks were in, one squadron were in Cyprus, so they weren't involved. A squadron were in Bovington uh, camp and B squadron were in Lulworth. We provided what we call war reserve crew. Uh, we literally had to get our gear, go from Bovington to Windsor to do all the paperwork and everything. We went through the back gates of Heathrow onto a 747 British Airways, took us over to Guttersloe, got all our kit, lobbed it onto the middle of the runway, and said, find your own gear. <laughs> then we had to go and get in the rail cars uh, that you see in all these old war films, sitting then. They took us to Senelaga on those, and literally we had to sleep and live for a couple of days in the hangars of the Queen Owns and use all their training equipment 
their uh, GTS gunnery training system and everything else. And then we were picked up on these old beasts uh, on low loaders and taken to various locations where the different regiments were. Now, that's the only time ever that I've done an exercise where the crew are actually inside the tank, all the crew, buttoned up on the motorways as though you were fully loaded and going to war. And then different regiments would come and pick you up. So if you had, you know, say, a squadron of the Scotch DGs had lost a tank, we would then fill that gap. So literally that was our job. So we stayed out there for a couple of days and then due to track mileage and everything else, we stayed on exercise with them and then we were withdrawn back into the barracks, clean the tanks up and then put them back into war reserve. But yeah, that was a massive, massive eye-opener. So it was literally from the UK, all the reserves piling across on the ferries and it was, yeah, the biggest exercise that um, that the British Army have done besides the Second World War. There's quite a lot of, um, I think, videos on YouTube showing uh, excerpts from, from Lionheart. I want to just go in a, a little bit more deeper around the training because you, you've mentioned Soltau. I understand from Mick was uh, not the most hospitable place to be doing. Uh... <laughs> well, <laughs> go on, Mick. <laughs> yeah, um, how to describe Soltau? Now, um, um, I know most of the listeners are ex-veterans and things, but um, it was once described to me by somebody who's not a million miles away as if the world had an arsehole, Soltau was it. It was like the moon with a few trees where you were... Uh, you can edit that bit out if you like, <laughs> uh, but it was it was it was a it was a training area in in, in northern Germany which was used uh, used by the German army actually, and there was actually a, a bunker in there where, where Hitler used to direct uh, some of his operations from, which you weren't allowed to go around. But interestingly, it was it was next to Heidi Park, which was like Blackpool Pleasure Beach next door. So you would uh, there's one part where you'd be driving down the down the side. You'd been on two weeks on exercise. You'd not been eating or drinking well, and you could see people having fun. Uh, on the other side but um how people navigated around saltar was was beyond me i mean i, I was I, I did it a lot more than me so he could uh, he could navigate around it with uh, with his eyes closed uh, and i think saltar was probably best known for the absolute legend that is wolfgang and I, if you haven't done an episode of wolfgang you need to yeah explain who wolfgang was because he is a definite legend of the uh, british army of the rhine so yeah so yeah wolf wolfgang had uh, a blue mercedes van uh, a long wheelbase van and a bit like a truck would turn up to um, to feed people at uh, a football match, then he would travel around Saltau in this this blue van, and he would feed people food and drink. And he knew where everybody everybody was. There were rumours that he was working for the Soviets, which obviously he wasn't. Um, but he could get to places that even even the tanks couldn't get to. He was he was a legend. So and when you've been on exercise for two weeks and you've been eating nothing but compo rations and and, and screech drinking screech and whatnot, you would see. Wolfgang coming around the corner, the exercise stopped, um, and everybody would line up and get their bratties from uh, from Wolfgang, that is a legend. And there's a couple of times where where I wasn't on our tanks, and I was commanding um, the four three two, the the bonk. I mean, it was called a bonk because you used to bonk your head around all the time on the inside of it. And I got lost, and and, and he was there, and he would he would I would say, where's where's uh, where's B Squadron, and he would tell you exactly where you were, even though we were all tactical. 
So this guy is, a, is an absolute absolute legend that most people that uh, have served in Germany would have uh, would have heard of, and I'm sure Alan's got plenty of stories as well. Yeah, I mean, he he ended up with I think about three or four vans. So whenever you came out of Rheinzeilen camp, which was the main base where it, it, it's on Luneburg Heath, just to the north of uh, Hanover, that way cellar, and north of Hohner Ranges that we used to go firing on, and um, the guy was unbelievable. You could you come out of Rheinzeilen camp and you go over what we call the tank bridge, which would take you over the main road into this godforsaken land of mosquitoes, mud, uh, a thing called, your listeners have probably heard to the word stripwood. Uh, there was hardly any trees left, but any exercise that, that took place, Wolfgang would be there. Wolfgang could tell you exactly what you were going to do the next day. And it was incredible that the guy, the minute the battle stopped, he would be sat there waiting to feed everybody. So you'd have you'd have a squadron of tanks and you know a, a battery of artillery and a squadron of uh, infantry legging it over to this wood, big battle taking place like boy soldiers. And the minute somebody shouted "Endex" and it was over, these vans would appear out of nowhere with Bratverse, Frikadella, Pommies, beer you name it, and this guy would be sitting there making an absolute fortune. But Salto itself as a training area um, really is invaluable because you just, it, it is, um, it's basically what you normally use or what we normally use pre going to Canada. So all the big exercises took place out in obviously on normal roads and in normal, but your pre Salto batters training always took on Salto and Horner for firing. I mean, both of you sent sent me a few uh, little anecdotes, which um, I've enjoyed. One of the ones I did want to ask you, Mick, about was the Swedish S-Tank Major. The, the Swedish Major had, had obviously served on S-Tanks, and um, he was coming down to either evaluate or um, to have a look at, at the Chieftains. Now, bearing in mind that you know he spent all this time on a tank that didn't have um, a, a turret we let him loose in the driver's seat of a, of a chieftain uh, and my recollection is of him driving full speed um, over the the humps and bumps uh, and battering everybody around in, in the turret not realizing that we actually had a turret uh, and i came out of that one uh, pretty pretty battered uh, and bruised but I, I do remember we had uh, we had something called a smoker which is uh, basically a barbecue so we would uh, knock a couple of trees down pour some oil over it set fire to it and 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 have some food uh and at the time he uh or i had a two liter bottle of cork which had uh, southern comfort in it and for some reason i thought i'd be able to drink out this major uh, i lost big time and i've never drunk southern comfort since one thing i did want to talk about and i've mentioned this in other episodes is uh i think a very much forgotten or understudied part of the cold war are the are the casualties that happened on these exercises well not pure, just in exercises but just in training generally i i think mick you you were telling me about a, a particular incident i wonder whether you can describe that for me yeah sure it was it was was very sad it was uh, we were um on the ring road um, at Horner Ranges, waiting to go to uh, another firing point. Um, and we were stopped, and I didn't know why we were stopped, but it, then it came over the radio that uh, a tank from another regiment had, uh, had overturned and um, got into a river. Uh, and they've managed to get 
um, I, I think they managed to get the loader out and the uh, and the commander out. I don't remember whether they got the, the driver out. Unfortunately, the, the poor lad that was the gunner was um, in in the tank that was filling up with uh, filling up with water, and uh, and I believe they were talking to the guy through the, the the telephone, which is on on the outside at the back of the tank, and unfortunately they couldn't they couldn't save him. And I, I just remember it being one of a very early time in my life where I really did think about how you know how lucky I was to be alive and, and how dangerous this job actually is, and um, and, and just feeling you know. <sighs> mortal uh, for want of a better word it was, it was quite a sad incident we talk about you know sort of funny incidents and and things like that but this was serious stuff not purely because of the perceived threat from from the soviets but every time you took one of these vehicles out they were big beasts you were dealing with machinery and equipment that handled incorrectly could could be fatal i dread to think how many people the soviets must have lost on exercise because i mean they were from my viewpoint not exactly um hugely focused on uh, safety well there was also the time um and this was before my time but um where the crew had slept underneath uh, one of the, the tanks and then the tank had had, had sunk uh, sunk down and there's nothing they could uh, they could do for those guys but i mean there were some near misses as well i would consider our experience um, on ranges where the the fume extractor failed as a, as a close miss i mean if we'd stayed in that turret for five or ten minutes more it could have been a whole different story i think when when people forget ian to be honest you know the, these things are like 60 tons you know and, and they, they, they they do move at a fair speed. I mean, obviously not like Challenger One or Challenger Two, but you know they 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 know, they can knock down trees and everything. I think my biggest experience that I had was um, well twofold really. When we're on exercise, if you don't have to, or you know, instructed that you get your tank bivy out, my guys and, and to be honest, I would think now ninety four percent of the crews used to sleep on the back decks. Simple as when tanks are moving around that wood at night, you haven't a clue where they're coming from and where they're going to. It's pitch black. So all we used to do was elevate the barrel slightly, put the tank sheet over the top of the barrel and make like a tent. Mm. And we used to just sleep on, on the back decks of the tank. A, you know, it was safer than being on the floor, but B, if you've been running most of the day, it was warm anyway. Uh, we did have a, 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 a one of the Salto exercises uh, I think it was a young lad from the Welsh Guards. One of our tanks actually went over the top of his trench and unfortunately he suffocated or he was crushed because obviously it just caved in the, you know, on an exercise at night when you're attacking with tanks and infantry, you've got little pin lights to show you where these things are and apparently one of ours went over the top. So unfortunately this this young lad lost his life. Um in Canada, there's been numerous, you know, on a league where you're supposed to come in from the back that's open, tanks have come in from the side and ran over ammunition and, you know, helicopter crashes and everything else. So you're playing the game, but you're playing the game for real. And, and it's not like when you're young kids playing soldier, you know, you've got a lot of hardware on the move at a lot of times. So unfortunately, accidents do take place. You just... We accepted it. 
and we just um, did the best we could, older people like myself, to protect the younger ones. And it all come with experience. It all, it all just came with experience. Sobering, sobering stuff there. Is there anything else that we can go? I'm, I'm conscious that we've been talking for like almost two hours. <laughs> I'm enjoying it. Um, good. That's what I like to hear. This is just the intro. Yeah, this is just the intro <laughs> bit. Another seven years. Yeah? I might have to release a director's cut at this rate. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. So we we were on. Um, I, I can't remember where the exercise was, um, but um, I, I at, the, at the time I've moved on from uh, from Al's tank, and I was the, the gunner for OCB Squadron uh, Major VZ Holt. Uh, but I was I was running the the armored ambulance one for one for Bravo. Um, Effectively known as as the bonk, and it was my job to deliver at the time um, radios and supply whatever people needed. So I would I would I would be the squadron's taxi, um, being driven by uh, a chap called Willis Mad Dog Willis. I'm pretty sure every regiment had a Mad Dog in there somewhere. Um, so yeah, I was tasked to uh, bring some radios to to a tank and, and got utterly lost. Um, unbeknownst to me, uh, I drove down a road towards an enemy formation that was that was um, lining up for battle, and I remember seeing a, a recce troop on on my right hand side, which happened to be our recce troop, um, and and I remember recognising it as our recce troop and, and, and waving to a guy called Rat Reed, uh, and then listening to him report me um, as as an enemy unit going the wrong way, and I was, no, it's not, that's not me. Um, but unfortunately, my mind tape, which had um, uh, denoted me as as, as being uh, blue rather than, than red force, had got ripped off when I was uh, travelling through the woods. And I came out into this vista in, in a valley and I saw a full squadron of Challenger tanks. Um, I saw uh, parachute regiment soldiers and, and a whole series of, of, of troops moving up a, up a line towards the, the recce troop who were quite correctly doing their job. Um, and I thought I've, I've got to bluff this out now, so I, I literally stopped by the nearest um, the nearest um, tank uh, and, and asked where I was. Uh, and he pointed to the map, and and the umpire came down and, and, and after I'd taken back off up the hill and said, "Where's your mind tape?" and I explained the situation, and he was like, "Yeah, okay, that, that, that's fine, get, get gone." Um, and as I'm driving back up the hill, um, I was literally flanked by um, some trucks left and right, so I'm sat in the middle of a sat in the middle of a convoy, me and and, and uh, Mad Dog Willis, and passed um, Rat Reed coming the other way and got reported the other way uh, as well, but managed to get back to the OC's tank and, and told him what what I'd seen, um, and then I parked around the edge of a wood. And there's actually, I've, I've given you a picture of, of me stirring into the air, um, but at that moment on that particular picture that I've, I've given you, there was... Uh, uh, some Lynx attack helicopters that have been called in. I'm not so sure whether that was as the result of my dodgy information, <laughs> but I do remember. Um, is, that, is that class as cheating? I'm not really sure. But hey, hey you're all's, all's very lovely. Artistic license, Mick. Well, this this is it, isn't it? I, I felt in, incredibly embarrassed that A, I got lost, B, an enemy tank commander had told me which way to go, and then I promptly reported his battle group. And then in my head, I'm, I'm pretty sure that uh, you know the, the attack helicopters, there were seven of them, um, uh, took off and, and headed in that direction. So I'd like to I'd like to think I did my bit to end the war, or at least the exercise <laughs> anyway. <laughs> oh, brilliant. I think we've, we've done the training aspect of it, which was 80% really of of our daily routine. Um, I think, to be honest, a lot of people don't understand how much 
that training helped at the time of the 70s and the 80s um, and obviously with the wall coming down in the 90s, uh, early 90, that, you know, you see you see these guys now, bless them, that are on Challenger 2 and everything else and the things they've gone through in Afghanistan and, and Iraq and all that sort of thing. You know, they, they've got a, a, a chest full of ribbons, bless them. And, now, you know, we were lucky, I suppose, if we had three, which would be uh, Northern Ireland, uh, the General service medal cyprus with the un mm-hmm. and what i would call your long service never been caught medal your ls and gc um but that was our time i think that's if you consider that most of the people went in as young kids at 16 17 18 and you come out now mid 30s i think somewhere around there i'm i'm still friends that i'm a mix probably the same with people I joined up in in 75, 76, with Facebook, internet, your good selves doing all this, we're still in contact. And and it really is, like the Americans say, a band of brothers. And with Mick, you know, I'm still in contact with Mick now. As a tank crew, it was Al, Mick, Steve, Dave. You got call sergeant, staff sergeant, sir, or whatever when you're off there. You literally sat in each other's pockets. And at the end of the day, if Cold War proved one thing for all of us, is that you you were literally a brother from another brother. Simple as. These young kids, I always said, as troop sergeant or troop leader, which I end up in on chiefs in anyway, there's 11 other people that I had to make sure was okay. I had my own family in Hanover. But as long as these, you know, my job was to keep these 11 people safe. You know, thankfully, you know, hindsight's a brilliant thing, Ian. Mm. We never went to war. But you nearly had the Cuban crisis. We've now got this thing taking place in Ukraine. How quickly has that come about? So how quickly could things have deteriorated in such a place in the 70s and 80s while we're in Europe, whether it be over oil, grain or whatever, that the Soviet pact, as it was then, decided they needed to head west to survive. And then we'd have had World War Three on our hands. I, I want to reinforce that point, um, particularly around um, how how um, close we were, how cohesive we were as a unit, and that bond still lasts to this day. And trying to explain uh, to people how close that bond is, it, it's like having a brother, but it's it, it's some, in some respects, it, it's deeper than that. And um, in one of your previous podcasts, there was one of your chaps that said, you know, if, if you know if the, the balloon had gone up, then lots of people would be heading down the uh, the autobahn, heading towards the port. So I've got to completely disagree with that. Particularly, I, I, mean, I can just speak for 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 one RTR. We were we were up for the fight, you know. We we weren't going that way. We were heading towards Berlin. We were, um, if you've ever seen the movie, what, uh, what's the movie with uh, Brad Pitt in? Um, oh, the, the um, Fury. 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 So a lot of us still say best job I ever had because that's what that, that's that's what they're saying there, um, and you, you know we we were the glue that that held um, everything together, and you know there, there are legends in every um, in every regiment, in, you know, in, in, including ours, and I'm sure that the that the bond that that, that we had, which still lasts today, continues through 
in, in all regiments, but particularly in, in Royal Tank Regiment. And we still feel very, very close to the Royal Tank, even though there's been an amalgamation from one, two, three, four, down to one, two, down to, down to the Royal Tank Regiment. It's still my regiment and it still will be until the day I die. And the people that, that were in it, whether you're in for three years or 30, 33 years, uh, it's something that is, something that's central to, to the way I, I, I grew up. And I still refer to Al as my as my army dad because that's, that's what he was. I was 17 years old. Uh, he tried to look after me, failed miserably sometimes, mm-hmm. but most of the time <laughs> he actually did quite a good job. So that bond is, uh, is very important. Sounds like you went off the rails when you left him, what with Southern Comfort and Swedish majors, you know. Right. To, to be honest, Ian, there is, there is so many stories that, that, that we could tell. I mean... Um, like on the tank ranges, you know, people go, you, you're training. Uh, people go, oh, well, it must have been great. Yeah, but you're training for war. So we've done the training. This was our time to prove we could do what we've done in training. And there was all sorts of trophies and everything else you could go for. I mean, Mick, Mick can tell you about the, They had a, an exercise called Oscar, where you get basically 10 rounds per tank. There's 30 rounds for the three tanks. And it was unheard of that anybody had got maximum. We literally, the troop leader, Taff, is a radio man, but we trained up that Wales that he actually hit 10 out of 10. We came off and I was adamant we'd had 9 out of 10, but the story was that as this moving target was pulling behind the mound, Mick said, shall I go for it? And I went, let it go. All the firing now and everything went out the window. I said, let it go. He banged at it and it literally hit it just over the top of the mound. And we argued like mad with the guy in charge. He said, we hit it. There's nothing saying that, you know, he was hiding behind the house. We hit it. So we got 10. And Mm. it made you feel good. It made you feel good that all that training as a crew, you know, not just the commander and the gunner, all four of us, all 12 of us as a troop, all 80 of us as a squadron, all 300 of us as a regiment, that's what we train for and thankfully we're still here to talk about it i mean you're you're training for this stuff every day how do you retain that that focus and and concentrate you know what what makes you continue to strive and and do that i think to be honest like any other job um, take a break from it. It wasn't so intense that you were there at half past eight in the morning. You know, let's say 80% of our time during the week would be on tank maintenance. Mm. It would be, mm. you know, track bashing, cleaning the guns, like like your, you know, servicing, mm. um, classroom work. But it literally was exactly as it said on the tin, we trained hard and played hard sport, doing other things, visiting Berlin, for instance, which was on the eastern side. We could go on the military train or drive up the motorway and visit Berlin. And we could even go into East Berlin in uniform. So we saw both sides. We could go to the border. You'd send people out down to the American sector at Fulda Gap to see what they, their problem was. We got very, very friendly, as Mick alluded to, to an American regiment called 3rd Squadron 11 Armoured Cavalry, who were, we used to do exchange work on their um, M1 tank, their Abrams. And they were brilliant people. 
so it, it was literally not just the training side of it, but also the social side was very important as well for bonding, I think. Mm. Mm. I do remember going down to uh, Bad Hersfeld um, and, uh, and meeting the 311 ACR. They, they had M1A1 and Abrams. And uh, they took us into their tank simulators, which were a damn sight better than ours. They were all, all com- computerized. Uh, and they were, I mean, they'd given us very, very minimal training on, on how to gun their tanks. And it was just a bit of a play thing. And they had different levels of, of uh, level one to 10 or whatever. And I think first time round, me and Al got up to level six, which was sort of unheard of. Um, you know, we were, we were shooting at Heinz that were on the screen and things like that. But, you know, in the evenings, we, the, the Americans would uh, would hold a barbecue or they'd take us down uh, down into Bad Hersfeld for a few drinks uh, and, and things like that. So there was quite a uh, – they were our sister regiment, um, basically. And, you know, some of those – and I know how you, you – you know, I've got, to, I've, got, I've got a friend in America called, uh, called Tracy, uh, Tracy Norris, and, and you've got friends that, that still exist to this day from that regiment. As you say, Alan, a true – band of brothers i think if if anybody really wants to know what it was like i would say that that book by tom clancy of red storm rising was very very good and and were it was as close as chieftain for us as a regiment even though it was you know a, a cavalry unit or as i call donkey wallopers um you know, it, it, it was really good. But if you read Red Storm Rising, then it's as close as you would have got to that World War Three. not just on the eastern side of the tanks and firepower and everything else, but as a war, you know, where they invade Iceland and all the rest of the stuff. So when you read things like that, that's the scenario that we didn't just train on what was happening on in our theatre. We... We literally learnt the whole ball, you know, the whole picture. It's quite easy just to concentrate on our one little patch. But, you know, imagine we held our patch and something happened in the folder gap. You know, you would then have to swing south and plug gaps and everything else. But you, you would be literally fighting a rear guard action, wouldn't we? We'd be pulling back and surviving as best we could with what ammunition and fuel we got, I suppose. <clears throat> The, the two other books that are worthy of mention is, is I think my favourite is called Chieftains um, by Rob Forrest Brown, I think it is, and that's the story of you know the Chieftain tank crew in World War Three. But another one which is um, probably not as, as well known, it's called Red Army by Ralph Peters, and that tells you the story uh, of you know the Cold War going hot, but from both sides. Uh, it's probably because I'm so immersed in this stuff. I'm amazed that nobody's made a film about Cold War going hot because what with all the cgi that they have now i think that's it Ian. i think with cgi now they, they could probably do that couldn't they I, I do know that if you go on youtube i think somebody's actually putting a few bits and pieces together with red storm rising i'm pretty sure somebody said there's one or two cgi type things going on on there but it, it as people who were there, you know, it would be fascinating to see that sort of film made, I think. Have you ever tried out any of these computer games that try and reproduce the Cold War? You- <laughs> well, 
I'm I'm a little bit younger than also. <laughs> yeah, I'm into computer games and things. I think I think the issue with 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 doing that is, and I'm sure all the wives can attest to this, and all the squaddies around the world will will attest to this. Is the moment something comes on TV and, some, and somebody calls a BMP a tank, well, that's it. That's that's the that's the, the movie ruined. So I think all, all squaddies will be looking at a movie or a video game and picking out the inaccuracies that it's, it's not an M1A1, it's an M1A2. And that's a really good fire position from behind that wood. So we're not really best uh, best placed to to give a critical acclaim of a computer game because we probably rip them to shreds for their for their inaccuracies. There are a couple. I mean, World 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 of Tanks is out there, uh, but it, it's it, it, it doesn't mimic it. Uh, They're there for entertainment, whereas it's very difficult to reproduce the waiting around and the. Fixing of the tracks and the cleaning out of the inside and the reality of it, you know, it, it, it's and and I think that that's what people don't realise about being in the military. It, well, I guess they do. I mean, there's that famous comment. What is it? It's sort of like ninety percent boredom and ten percent absolute terror or something. I'll tell you what my favourite saying used to be. Okay, so the OC would come up to the site major and say. Sergeant Major, yes, sir. Fuck the men about. Right, sir. Get on the truck. Get off the truck. Get on the truck. Get off the truck. Men fucked about. Thank you, Sergeant Major. That's what it was like sometimes. <laughs> Al, do, do you remember that every Friday we, we used to sweep the tank park, regardless of whether it was uh, clean or not? And once a year we had a, a, a regimental leaf clearing day until somebody worked out the man cost of it all. <laughs> Ian has probably had people on there on his pod that have said exactly the same with royal visits. I'm sure the Queen, bless her soul, when she used to come visiting, thought that every blade of grass was bright green and every stone was white. And it, was, it, was painted, it was painted green. <laughs> you know, but that's, unfortunately, that's, as I say, that's that was part of it, was, you know, it was sometimes the boredom side of it. But again, that's why I said with the social side, it wasn't just drinking and blah, blah. You know, we, we were – some people were in Germany because that's where the work was. Families were the same. A lot of families didn't like like to be out there, but that's where the husbands were. And I suppose, Ian, if you said, you know, what, what benefit did we get from that? We were in the middle of Europe. You could – travel was fantastic. You could travel anywhere you wanted. Alcohol was cheap. Cigarettes were cheap. Fuel, we had coupons, so you got cheap fuel. Imagine you had cheap fuel coupons now, you'd be all over the world. But that's ex- exactly, you know, so to me personally and my young family, what I did is immerse myself in it. And, and that was the main thing. If you're in Germany or wherever you may be, make the best of a bad deal. And, you know, I played football for a local German team and, my daughter and wife played netball and, and found a job in Germany. So, you know, we, yeah, it was a stressful job and, and there's no getting away from that. But we had a good time. It was a, it was a good time to be in and around Europe. It really was. Well, many people say that Germany was, was a great posting. Yeah, I think, well, uh, particularly Hildesheim as well was, was a great posting. And again, listening to some of your podcasts where um, uh, the Russians really didn't 
integrate um, the stadium barracks, etc. And we were, you know, we, we you could go wherever we want. We were encouraged um, to do whatever we want. So, I, you know, I'll be out clubbing in Hill Design and Hanover at the weekends. I'd also uh, was also a member of a local um, shooting club as well. So there was there was plenty of things to do um, in, in, in camp as well. I mean, we haven't even got onto the whole subject of Canberra idea. That's that's probably. Uh, another episode, you know, a great uh, celebration of uh, uh, tanks in action. Uh, but every every regiment has its own regimental day. Um, but there were always there was always something going on. There was something on in, on, on in the gym. There were football matches. Um, so we were okay. So I, I don't ever remember being bored. To be fair. Don't miss the episode extras, such as videos, photos, and other content. Just look for the link in the podcast information. The podcast wouldn't exist without the generous support of our financial supporters and I'd like to thank one and all of them for keeping the podcast on the road. If you'd like to help the project, just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. The Cold War Conversation continues in our Facebook discussion group. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thanks very much for listening and see you next week. not enjoying the ads well you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate by becoming a monthly or annual supporter you'll enjoy ad-free listening become a part of our community receive the sought after cold war conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve cold war history just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information